Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we're taking a trip to Baltimore to chat with some of its residents about the various ways they make a living there. We're hoping to learn a little about the ways that Baltimore shapes their work and the ways they're shaping Baltimore by working. Baltimore has a fraught relationship to its criminal justice system. To try to better understand that, we spoke to Jenny Egan, who works as a public defender representing young people. In this episode, she discusses the effort that goes into direct representation and shares what it's like to work in an office where the very children you're defending are locked up in the floors below. She also talks about her relationship with prosecutors and shares what keeps her going on the worst days. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Egan tells us about how she first fell in love with Baltimore. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? I'm Jenny Egan and I'm a juvenile public defender. What does that entail? I represent kids who have been charged with a crime who cannot otherwise afford a lawyer of their own. And, you know, they're kids, so... I've never met a 13-year-old who had enough spare change for a lawyer. How did you get into this line of work? What's what's your background? Oh, God. I never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> Surely you lived through it, though. I did. I went to law school a little bit late, like in my late 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working at the ACLU at the National Security Project. I had worked on issues of Guantanamo and international human rights, and I saw sort of a ceiling to my career, so I went to law school with a very clear path, thinking very much that I was going to do systemic work on international human rights issues. And when I went to law school, I represented a client for the first time. And I've long believed that criminal justice and the carceral system in the U.S. is the civil rights issue of my age. I just... I don't... I never thought that I could be a public defender. I was worried about the exhaustion and the lack of money, um, mm-hmm. two things that plague me today. <laughs> but, um, so you were right. 
Uh, I was right. But also I had never experienced what it was like to represent someone and stand up next to someone in criminal court. And I realized that direct representation is actually where my skill set lies. So you went from looking at these issues at this kind of macro level to that more immediate visceral work? Yeah, I mean, I definitely do a certain kind of work. Uh, I could tell you my critique of <laughs> tell, tell us what uh, I mean. So for me, like a lot of like systemic litigation, people look at what problems are and, and their ideas of problems or they read about them in like articles from academics and then they try to find people that fit those claims. And I think they miss a lot of the real claims and I also think that they look for perfect people to bring claims, but injustice isn't happening to perfect people. Injustice is happening to regular people. Injustice is happening to people who don't have polish. Can you tell us a little about the kinds of young people that you represent? What sort of crimes are they accused of? So I work in Baltimore City. Baltimore City is 60% black, but I would say that the kids I represent are 90 to 95% black. Mm. And for crimes, it's a, it changes uh, and it's changed dramatically over time. And there's swings and there's trends. Mm. Um, a large portion of my cases have always been drugs. Dealing or dispossession? Both. Police always charge everybody who has drugs with dealing, right? Mm. So almost all drugs, they overcharge. Uh, so it's hard to say which I'm handling most of them are actually possession, but they're always charged as if they're possession with intent to distribute. It'll be like you had five baggies, and so that's not personal use. But there'll be like one gram baggies. And anyone who knows how people are purchasing weed knows that you, you know, nobody's buying four dollars or five dollars of weed uh, <laughs> at a clip. Um, so, well, except for I do work with teenagers, so sometimes they are buying five dollars <laughs> of weed at a clip. But. So drugs is a big one, and it used to be a lot more marijuana. Maryland decriminalized the possession of minor amounts of weed, but it's still weed, heroin, other things to a lesser extent, but mostly it's heroin, uh, possession and dealing of heroin. And then robberies, thefts, a lot of economic-based crimes, and then a lot of misdemeanor minor assaults. I do focus and, and do a lot of work on the school to prison uh, nexus. And so I have a lot of school assaults, a lot of school fights, uh, a lot of minor misdemeanor BS charges, trespassing. There's a huge amount of vacants in Baltimore City. So I get a lot of kids playing in empty houses, get trespass charges. But it runs a gamut. I, you know, I have rapes, murders, How whole, do you, whole nine. How do you get kids assigned to you in the first place? What's that process? So we have a vertical representation model, which means that I have like an assignment day. So in a month, I'll have four or five assignment days. Uh, and every new case that comes in that day, either a new arraignment or a new emergency arraignment, me and whoever else is on assignment gets that case. But once I get a kid who's had their first arrest, anytime that child is in trouble or gets a subsequent arrest, I represent them. Mm. So I get cases on my assignment days, and then I already have a cadre of hundreds and hundreds of clients. So if any of them get into trouble or have an arrest, that new case is also mine. Is that a standard practice in public defender context? No, it's best practice, but it is not widespread. Do you develop relationships with the young people that you represent over time? 
Yeah. Yeah, a lot. I mean, I know kids for years and I also watch them grow up and I'm part of important things that happen in their lives mm. or, or milestones. The nature of my work also means that I represent kids usually uh, on the worst day of their lives yeah. and sometimes following some of the worst things that they've ever experienced. My, my clients experience extreme amounts of trauma. Uh, I have met 15-year-olds who have seen way more than the most harried adult. I mean, my kids experience shit that I can't imagine. Um, and so it does tend to create a bond when mm. you're the first person to walk into a cell and listen to a kid after something like that has happened. It certainly forms relationships. And then some kids I know for years, well into adulthood. Yeah. What are those first encounters with someone when you're first meeting a young person at this terrible moment like? How do you start to build that connection or build trust or reach out? So it's difficult first because of the way that we treat kids uh, who are accused of crime. They are um, shackled foot and hand. They are put in cells. They are treated with nothing approaching respect and sometimes for very minor things. Um, the other thing about kids is the way that crime works with kids. For example, like school-based arrests. I will tell you that most kids who get arrested for beating the crap out of someone in school have long been the victims and are tend to retaliate or defending themselves. So it's this heartbreaking thing when you walk into a room and a kid who has been victimized for years and years finally defends themselves. And what we do is we put them in handcuffs and lock them in a cell. And mm. um, no one should have any illusions about how we treat children. Like baby bookings, which is where I work, the jail, is a jail. It's what, That's the name of the jail? I mean, that's the Baltimore name for the jail. <laughs> the Baltimore City Juvenile Justice Center, otherwise known as babies or baby bookings, uh -huh. um, is designed just like a correction facility. It is uh, small cells. It is a steel platform for a bed. It is a steel sink. They are tiny cells that I have seen children as young as eight or nine mm. be put into. So when you walk into a room with an 11 year old who is in, his, in a prison cell and people are yelling outside and it, I mean, it's a terrifying environment and a very hard place to establish trust First of all, I try to get to eye level or lower. It's a place where everyone is trying to intimidate and to physically dominate children. So I try to sit on the floor or sit low or be a little bit more casual. It's this fine line between you want the kid to know that you're a lawyer and that you're a professional and you're there and you're going to fight for them. So you can't show up in a t-shirt and jeans and like try to be like a cool advocate, but you also want to be like, I work for you. So I very mm -hmm. much, I sit down and I'm like, I'm sorry this thing is happening to you. I'm sorry that anyone ever put handcuffs on you. I'm sorry that they've put you in this cell. This is wrong. I believe that this is wrong. Mm -hmm. No matter what you did, you shouldn't be treated this way. And I'm sorry. So I usually start with an apology, which I don't think it establishes trust. And I'm sure all it does is assuage my guilt, but I do want, a child to know that someone believes that they shouldn't be there and that they shouldn't be treated that way. Uh, and then it's just a matter of reading the kid. Like yeah, there's no one way to do it. Like some kids are eager to talk and eager to trust you. Some kids like need a hug. 
other kids are real hard and tough and I'm just another white lady in a place that's trying to lock them up. You just read that situation and sometimes I establish great trust early on and sometimes they never like me. Um, but those kids really stick in my in the ones my, that don't in my like craw. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, like I, I, at some point I need a kid to know like I, I'm in a special position, right? Like I'm the only job I can think of in the world that's not a mandatory reporter. When you say mandatory reporter, you mean you're not required to report, say, yeah. say if they've done something wrong? or Yeah, so I, I'm an attorney, so everything they tell me is confidential. But unlike a social worker or a teacher or all these other people who say they'll keep your secrets, I have to. Mm. Um, so a kid can tell me whatever they did wrong, and they can also disclose abuse to me. They can tell me they want to go home with their pimp. They can tell me all of those things, and I am legally bound not to tell anyone else without their permission. Kids are so used to people saying that they can trust them and not being able to trust them uh, that it's very hard to convince anyone of that fact. Um, but I do work hard to earn their trust and explain that whatever you tell me, I'm taken to my grave without your permission to tell someone. And if that means I'm going to be held in contempt or whatever else, that's what's going to happen. Um, Is it difficult to carry those kind of confidences ever? I mean, I imagine you hear some pretty fucked up shit. Yeah, it's awful. Um, It's awful in that there are times when I have to allow things to happen or that I know that terrible things are happening um, to my clients. my I've seen my clients accept charges, go to placement, just take things for people who are actually guilty or for adults in their life. And I could very easily stand up and explain it and prove it wrong. But if my client doesn't want that to happen, that doesn't get to happen. You said uh, the word placement earlier. What's placement? Oh, it's juvie prison. Um, I don't know why I accept their acronyms, but yeah, it's juvie jail. This is a difficult, maybe even nightmarish in some cases, environment for the kids mm-hmm. that you're meeting with. You, I guess, go there all the time, but is it difficult for you to be there? So the way that Baltimore's system is set up is that the juvenile justice center, or babies, is that the first level is a prison for kids. The second level is where our offices are, as well as the Department of Juvenile Services and the state's attorney. And then the third floor is the court house. So I am at all times thinking about the children that are in prison just below my feet, right? If Mm -hmm. I'm at my office or if I'm in court upstairs. It is difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, kids I care about, and no doubt I love some of my clients and I care about all of them, it's very difficult to be sitting at your office checking your email and knowing that children you care deeply about are downstairs in jail. It it wears on you. It wears on you quite a bit. Have you developed emotional coping strategies to keep working under these kind of conditions? Yeah, I mean, you have to. Um, I have never had a job where I rely on my coworkers so much. Um, so I have intense relationships. The thing is, there's so you see so much messed up stuff, and it's so awful all the time that if I told my friends and my like they it ruins a dinner party, right? You can't be like, oh, today I saw 
a sheriff like punch a kid I really care about oh, 18 God. times. And then his mom told me that if he dies, it's going to be my fault. Like you can't say that at dinner yeah. because everyone's like, oh, womp womp. And for me, that's like, that's what happened between nine and 10. Like, I don't even mm-hmm. want to tell you what happened at lunch. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. It's just like, <laughs> no, that's my no, coping that's strategy. So my coping strategy is I make a lot of jokes about violence and death and with trauma. your coworkers mostly and my coworkers are like a support system like okay. no other like there's a definitely like a vomiting up of of trauma as soon as it happens to get it out and to have it be done mm. therapy is important for everyone but also for all public defenders the, the thing that makes it harder is vertical representation right like lots of public defenders have these intense interactions or feel really guilty about their clients but when they're adults they go to prison for long periods of time and or they never see them again. Like mm. I see my kids, right? Like I, uh, the the 10-year-old who I meet, who's the most severely abused kid I've ever experienced, I'm, I see him again when he's 14. I know him again when he's 15. And uh, I, I imagine... I have some coping skills, but I don't think I have enough. That must be a burden too, seeing people continue to circulate through a system that is hard on them. Um, I don't think it's just hard on them. I also think it's designed to do violence against poor people and people of color. And Mm. like it's designed to do that violence. So you Um, went from looking at some of these (laughs) issues at a really large level to just really seeing how that violence (laughs) is enacted in process. Yeah. Um, And it's it's harder. Yeah, it's definitely harder because there's no, there's no, like, the juvenile justice system is supposed to address the root causes of delinquency, right? So like the root causes of what causes a kid to steal or rob or hit someone. And there's no solution uh, on the on the individual level. I'm so sorry. There's no solution on the individual level to systemic poverty and racism. Like I can't mm. for a 15-year-old fix the fact that he has a shitty school, lead poisoning, uh, and parents who are overburdened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and neither can any system, right? Unless you're going to actually give people money and education and stable housing. And we don't do that yeah. in the U.S. And we certainly don't do it in Baltimore. Yeah. So the juvenile justice system is supposed to address these issues and doesn't have any tools to do that. So instead, we just punish people. You're listening to Baltimore Public Defender Jenny Egan. After this brief break, she tells us about her typical activities and the investigative side of her work. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. What's a typical day like for you? <laughs> so I have no typical day, um, but I'll tell you a lot of the you, things I do. You'd be surprised by how yeah. few professions we've <laughs> spoken to actually have a typical day. Yeah. Um, I'm usually in court every day. Um, I'm in court by 8.45, 9 a.m. I handle a case or two. 
And that means I either meet new clients or I interview my current clients or I have a trial. For me, I have, God, I don't know, anywhere from 15 to 20 trials a month. So I usually have at least one trial almost every day. Um, Then I would spend all of my lunch break calling people, returning phone calls, checking up on things. I go downstairs to detention and interview my clients who are there long-term waiting for transfer hearings or who have been stuck there for a minute. I usually go to court in the afternoon. If I don't, I could go to a meeting about school police policy or go to a scene to do an investigation. Do you interact much with the police? I mean, I interact with the police in that I have them on the stand and I read their reports and I watch their body-worn camera footage mm-hmm. all day, every day. When when you say you go to the scenes themselves sometimes, what does that involve usually? So um, it depends. But the best way to cross-examine someone and the best way to understand a scene is not to read... Um, you know, I've worked in other places and police reports tend to be like two or three pages. In Baltimore, I'm lucky if I get a full paragraph. Mm. So a full paragraph about a crime that's trying to take away someone's freedom tends to not be enough to understand what's actually going on. And if you actually want to understand what's going on, you should probably never take the word of the person trying to put someone else in jail. Mm -hmm. So I go to the scene. If my kid got arrested, if he was riding a bike, allegedly riding a bike on a sidewalk and then got searched and they found heroin and the police won't disclose their covert location, I need to go to the block I need to look at all the angles. I need to know where the streets are. I need to know where the CCTV cameras are in the sky. I need to ask around and see if there was anyone there when it happened. Sometimes I need to take pictures so that I can point to things when someone's on the stand and have them clarify. So Um, you're doing investigative work to some extent. Oh, yeah. You have to. I mean, all decent criminal defense attorneys are investigating Mm -hmm. their cases. That's the only way to litigate them. Yeah. What other responsibilities consume your days? Oh, God. I mean, I'm part criminal defense attorney, but the other half of my job is social work. So I make sure kids are enrolled in school. I go to their houses to make sure there's, I mean, I'm making sure there's groceries. I'm trying to write letters to sweet talk people to give them scholarships into after school programs. I'm calling grandma to beg her to let him come stay there and negotiating like how much mom will pay out of his social security check for groceries if grandma lets him stay at the house because that's the only thing that'll keep him from getting locked up. All the things you do with a kid who's in trouble. I'm, yeah, trying to help families negotiate terrible circumstances, trying to talk my clients into things that would help them without betraying their trust or being just another adult telling them what to do. Mm. You know, this year has been really terrible. So it's visiting kids who have been shot or hurt. It's seeing if they want to leave the city and how we could do that. Are you able to help them in those contexts? Have you ever tried to talk a 16 year old into anything? Not since I was 16. It's horrible. Oh, sometimes, but no, I mean, There are cities where there's poverty and they're resource rich, but Baltimore is not resource rich. Uh, We don't have good jobs programs. We don't have options for kids to do things. And most of my clients who are in the worst situations are, I mean, 
I don't know how to, like, people don't under, we're in this house, right? Like, so I live in this adorable little row house just off one of the major thoroughfares. And literally, I have a client who lives 100 yards from my house, but it's just over that dividing line, which is Greenmount. The life expectancy on my side of Greenmount is 30 years more than 100 yards from my house. Hmm. The kind of systemic poverty that my clients live in is not understood by anyone else who stands in the courtroom, certainly not by the prosecutors, not by the judges, not by anyone. And... They want kids to like work and go to school and like they don't have enough to eat and they live in just the most overcrowded, rundown, unsafe. Like, I don't know how to describe it for people who don't go into these kids' houses or talk to them about what it's like. But, you know, like my clients often like have never had a bed, right? Like never slept on a bed, never slept on a mattress. And when you're 14 and you've never slept on a mattress and someone's like, I want you to do 50 hours of community service and earn $1,000 to repay uh, the car you stole, like, get the fuck out of here. People have no concept of what it's like and how exhausting it is to be poor. Is that something that you can work to change at all or are you just patchwork? No, I mean, there's, there's not, no, it's just patchwork. There's no individual solution for systemic poverty. There's no way that I can make your parent not intellectually disabled and make you rich. And that's the, like, for me, that's the root cause of most problems is systemic poverty and racism. Uh, I fight for those things on a micro level. I fight for those things as a resident. I fight for those things like in terms of policy. Um, but no, the court very often wants children to fix as individuals what are systemic problems. Um, and, and that's the nature of the criminal justice system in general. We tell people that you have to live in an unjust, unfair world uh, that exploits you and grinds you down. And if you like do anything uh, wrong, then, then you have to like fix something totally out of your control. I mean, not totally, I'm not trying to like abdicate all personal responsibility, but first of all, I represent kids. So how much responsibility can a 16 year old have? And two, like, (laughs) Like, what is the choice, right? Like, what is the real choice? Like, you don't eat or you can make $1,000 this week selling heroin. And you can support your mom and you can buy your siblings school uniforms and you can help out people you love. There's only one, as far as I'm concerned, ethical choice for most 16-year-olds. When someone says, you can watch your family suffer in poverty, you can watch people get sick or you can sit here on the stash and earn $1,000 this week. You could feed your family or you could not. Uh, I find it a, a horrible system that says, no, we're now going to jail you for doing the only thing you can. Because unemployment in Baltimore is huge, especially for young people 18 to 30. Finding a job is much more difficult than people know or think, especially for kids I represent, many of whom can't read, don't function, don't know what it is to have a job. There's no court program that helps them. There's no job services, readiness program, none. But they say, go get a job. You represent 
hundreds mm-hmm. of people. I mean, even if your caseload is is not that large in any given week. <laughs> maybe it is. <laughs> All right, sure. Well, you, you tell us you're not in trial hundreds of times. No, I'm not. I don't have trials, but I, I I have hundreds of active cases. Yeah. How do you keep track of all of those cases? So I, um, not as well as I would like to. It's a little bit of triage. So it's a little bit of like whose crisis is worse mm. and who is freshest in my mind. And that's the unfortunate truth. So if I've established enough of a relationship, a kid will call me and that kid gets more because they're able or willing to call me or to remind me. Mm-hmm. But like for me, every day is unique in that like if someone I represent gets arrested the night before then all of a sudden I have to drop everything and go to court for that kid Mm -hmm. so I may have a day plan where I'm going to go visit or go to a school hearing and then I have to drop it because I have to be in court to represent a kid and handle that crisis that happened that day Um, when you have to drop one thing for another more urgent thing are you able to communicate the other kids that no not as much as I would like to because most kids don't have phones Mm -hmm. um well, yeah, and most kids I represent don't have phones. Most parents have numbers that go in and out, like if they don't have minutes. I do my best. Yeah, yeah. I try. It's difficult. So I don't have a work phone, which means that like it, the best way to communicate with a 15-year-old be, would be to Facebook them or text them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I need a work phone. But then it's giving out my personal cell phone, which I just do. But it's it really exhausting when thousands of people have your work cell phone number and call you when they're in most desperate need of help. It can interrupt your resting life. Does that mean that you... My wife have... might not love that. <laughs> Do you have like hundreds of, or thousands, I guess, of contacts in your phone then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I meet, I just meet thousands of people a year. So, you know, a kid and a mom and brother at some point all get my number and... um to the question, like I just triage, it's about what's addressing most immediate and what I can do. But I, you know, I just send out a hundred emails and whatever I get back is what I'm like tracking down. And then I circle back and it's hard to keep track of. It's really hard to keep track of. I have like systems and Excel spreadsheets and all of those sorts of things. But it's also when you know a kid is in crisis, um, they never fully leave your mind. So it's also just a matter of like, as soon as I've taken care of what Anthony needs, I've been worrying about Brian the whole time. So then I go to that and then I got to, then I got to call Brianna and on and on and on. I'm getting the sense that the hours must be pretty brutal. (laughs) So I try very hard to uh, leave work by six, um, Six. I try to leave by six, but I tend to work at home in the evenings and on weekends. So, so you're really never off completely. Uh, no. Uh, we've instituted lately something called screen-free Shabbat, so that on Fridays at eight o'clock, I have to lock my phone and my computer away in this attempt to like reclaim the weekend but it only lasts till the morning but that's fine that's like a really good break for me to not be accessible for like three or four hours on a friday night is really awesome pretty short weekend though yeah that's fine (laughs) 
I mean, it's really rewarding, right? Like, I don't want to make it sound like it's all doom and gloom. The other thing is, like, I'm a juvenile public defender and, like, an adult public defender. Like, I have the honor of setting kids free from chains back into their mother's arms. Mm. And if you've never been hugged by someone whose kid you just got out of jail, then you don't know what fulfillment is. (laughs) It is incredibly rewarding. And I work with bad kids. And the reason that kids are bad, usually in my experience, is the kids that are bad are kids who are the most insightful, who are the most angry about injustice, who see the world for how it works and have the most amazing things to say about it. Like, I work with incredibly smart, cunning, like, just hilarious, loving kids. Um, I, I love my job. I love my clients. I love the families I work with. It's incredibly rewarding. So it's not all, like, just exhausting and sad. You've been listening to public defender Jenny Egan. In a moment, she talks to us about learning the full story when she's representing someone. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It sounds like a lot of your clients come to you because of really bullshit charges. Mm -hmm. Some of them, presumably, though, have done pretty terrible stuff. I mean, is it ever difficult to represent someone who has murdered someone or raped someone, something like this? No, not for me. Um, The thing that someone does on the worst day of their life or the worst thing someone has done is not who that person is. And that is trebly so when you're talking about a kid. So... If a 15-year-old has shot someone, if you talk to them about the circumstances that led up to that, and and I do think that there's this unique privilege, right, that I speak to someone honestly about the worst thing they ever did, and it's a secret. I don't know that anyone else ever gets that privilege, right? Like, I don't know that a journalist or a counselor or anyone else in the system actually ever keeps that secret. So when you can talk to someone and they can tell you a whole story, you see them as a whole person. And I don't know anyone in the world who's not a criminal, right? Like we all talk about criminals. Those are just the people who were charged. Like 
if I followed you for two days, I could find enough charges to keep you in jail for a long time. I could. Um, and you just don't know it, right? Like you can mischaracterize anything as a crime. That being said, if we're talking about someone who's killed someone or raped, it's not who a person is. It's the worst thing they did. And kids don't fully understand people talk about kids as if they're mini adults. But what we know is kids are not mini adults. Kids literally cannot control their impulses as well as adults or even younger kids and don't have a full understanding. So the things that kids do and things that happen to kids are horrible. And sometimes kids lack empathy. Mm. It's not because they're little monsters. It's literally because their brains have not fully developed empathy and they don't have full understandings of the consequences. So when you tell a 14-year-old someone's dead or that they would die as a result, it doesn't have the same meaning as a 35-year-old person who has lost a best friend or lost a mom and known what that means over a long extended period of time. Death and violence don't mean the same thing to a kid who doesn't have any life experience. Um, and so, no, it's never bothered me and it's never been hard for me to look at a kid who has done the worst thing possible and to say, you know, that's not okay. And also like, I forgive you and it's going to be okay. And I don't think you are the thing that you did. But I think that of adults too, like this idea that someone is a criminal or not a criminal, or that someone is a murderer. That's not what that person is. That's something that person did. Um, and it's horrible, but it doesn't change that they're still a person. Um, and I strongly believe that all people are worthy of love and kindness. I don't care what they did. So you said earlier that lawyers doing civil rights work shouldn't just be looking down and cherry picking ideal clients, but that they should be able to work from the ground up, pushing things, if I understood right, through yep. the legal system to create new precedent and things like this. Uh, have you been able to do that during any of your, your work here in Baltimore? Sorry, I'm still sick. Um, so I very much believe in a community lawyering approach um, and that people should be enmeshed in the communities that they purport to represent um, and that there are ways to create webs and systems that allow those cases to become larger systemic challenges. I do that a little bit on school-based arrests and I focus on school-based arrests for a while um, in an effort to reduce the problem in Baltimore. School-based arrests were down about, I think, maybe 50%, the school system will say it was 75, but there's no accurate numbers prior to this year, so it's really hard to tell. I have tried to establish relationships with people I know who are doing that systemic work to connect them with plaintiffs, but it's really difficult. Like I can lay out the claims for a lawyer friend of mine, and they'll be like, great, tell your client to call me. And I'll be like, my client is a 13-year-old special education student who's homeless. They're not going to call you. Um, that's not how this is going to work. Um, and so I continue to run into problems with lawyers understanding what kind of work it would take 
uh, to be on the ground and what kind of work it takes to establish trust with clients. But I'm try- I try. I'm trying. One of the stereotypes about public defenders is that mm-hmm. you're not paid very well. You work really hard. You have a hard job. But the financial rewards are not considerable. Is that accurate? No and yes. So I make the same amount of money now that I made 10 years ago before I went to law school. But I was living in New York then and I live in Baltimore now. So the cost of living is significantly different. Um, It depends. Public defenders are paid vastly different all across the country Mm. Um, the wage like starting public defenders in Massachusetts make $40,000 a year I think that that is abominable Mm -hmm. but Maryland has a statewide public defender system so we are state employees and the pay scale uh, about I think it was 10 or 15 years ago Maryland evened out the pay of their public defenders with the attorney general's office so with the starting salary of state prosecutors. That is a good way to make sure that people earn a living wage because prosecutors generally are never going hungry. Mm -hmm. So we make an okay wage. The starting salary for a public defender in Baltimore is $56,000. Which isn't great for someone with a law degree necessarily, but... It isn't great with someone with a law degree and $300,000 of debt, but it's... I mean... Is it worth it? Like, I don't care. Like... I've never been wealthy. $56,000 a year is more than the majority of Americans make. Yeah. So people can say public defenders make shit money, but they make shit money for lawyers. It's a totally fine wage and it's livable. And yeah, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need to be rich. I'm, I'm never going like, <laughs> to, like, I was never going to be rich. I'm never going to be rich. Okay. What sort of relationships professional or otherwise, do you have with people in other sectors of the justice system, prosecutors or or, or whoever else, judges? Yeah, so one of the real lived experiences of clients who have lawyers is that their defense counsel and the prosecutor and the judge are all a part of a system that excludes them. And people often get the feeling that their defense attorneys, when court is not in session is joking with the prosecutor and that they're friends and that they all hang out and that there's no one who's there for them. So I am very careful about my relationship with prosecutors as a result. Um, But it's a careful line, right? So I work with these same people every day and I need to negotiate with them sometimes to get good plea deals or to explain my client's situation or to invoke their understanding or to convince them that a stop was actually illegal. Like, I have to have a good working relationship with them. And I need to make sure that they don't think I'm their friends. Um, and that my clients know that we're not friends. But that's really difficult to understand because lawyers are a part of a secret, you know, like, cult society. And they are all a part of this elitist club. Um And so it's very difficult to walk that line. I try to be professional and polite and to keep a remove. 
I have never been to lunch with a prosecutor. I would never go to drinks. I would never have them for dinner. Hmm. Um, one, because that remove is important for maintaining my client's trust. Um, and two, because I do think that making your living off of putting people in cells is immoral. And I understand why people think it's okay to do. I understand that people think they're protecting the public. I understand that they, some prosecutors, and not all, because I don't think all, think they're doing the right thing. Um, But at its base, I think that the U.S. prison system is a a human rights abuse. I think what we do is unforgivable. And I, I can't break bread with someone who puts people in jail for a living. I know that's harsh. And that's going to like be really harsh. I, I know people that are prosecutors. I think that they're nice, some of them, and, and the majority. I won't say the majority because I don't. Um, but there are people I have good working relationships with. And I'm sure that people think that what I do is immoral. Um, and I understand that as well. I can think that it's not right without having animosity. But I, I would hope that that people think about what they're doing and the fact that we incarcerate more people than the rest of the world, that we have 25% of the world's prison population, that we have disenfranchised three full generations of black people, um, that this is this current system, our current laws um, are an extension of slavery and Jim Crow. I, I just don't know how you can participate in that. That being said, I think that I'm a public defender and I am the easy veneer that the legal system puts on the outside of an unfair system and that I am a cog in that same machine and that my participation might be holding that system up as well. So I don't know how I break bread with myself either. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Right. Like public, like the fact that you get a free attorney is the thing that makes it okay that we lock up millions of people. And the fact that they're underfunded, it's not just the salary I get, right? It's the caseloads that I get that don't allow me to actually represent the way that I would. Yeah, sure. Imagine if I had three felony trials a month instead of 16 or 25. What what I could do. Oh, my God. I would be the best. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, because I would have time. Like, you have to think, if I have 16 trials a month, so there's five days in the week. Uh, there's four weeks. So there's only 20 court days. Or wait, no, there's 20 court days. I have 16 trials. I have five assignment days. I already don't have any days to do work. Well, I don't have the time I want to represent people. I don't care about money. I just wish I had so much more time. What keeps you going in all of that? I love my job. It's also fun. So I'm a, it's in a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. Um, if you've ever, like, being in trial is like a huge adrenaline rush. I can, it can go on for four or five hours and I won't remember any of it. Like, it's just adrenaline the whole time. Like, I'm very scattered and like, I'm always doing 18 things at once. And in trial, I am laser focused 
on whatever is happening in front of me and the like holding it all together in my mind. I think that criminal defense attorneys are a little bit adrenaline junkies and that keeps you going, right? Like you are definitely seeking the next high. It's just a different form of um, the juice. Uh, So there's a little bit of that. Um, That definitely is fuel and it's good. But also like I work with kids who are great. Like I get invitations to high school graduations and I get sincere thank yous. And also like I get not guilties and I get kids out of trouble. I work with people all day, every day and like the people of Baltimore and the moms and sons and daughters and dads. Like it's really easy to keep going. Like every time I have something really horrible, then a kid like comes in and gives me a hug or tells me terrible, stupid 16-year-old joke. Like, it's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. It's worth it. Yeah, it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. You can also listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. Thank you to Christina Catarucci for setting us up with Jenny Egan. And thank you to June Thomas. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.